Well, welcome to DBC, and I am so glad that you're here. I know that these days bring upon just so much activity, it being Mother's Day and all of the events surrounding that. And I just want to say thank you for choosing DBC. And I would also like to challenge you men specifically to care for your brides and to care for if, if, they, if you have children. And then also for your mother, do something special for them. Give them a call, um, rub your wife's feet, whatever it takes. That is what you have to do. All right, men, is that what we're going to do? Is that what we're going to do, men? Man, another sad bunch. The 915 was terrible. No, it was too late to even matter, Brian. Forget about it. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to honor um, mothers. And the great thing is Father's Day comes after that. So you set a really good example for yourself next month. Not that we want to be self-serving, but it's just the way the calendar works. Um, But thanks for being here. And please do honor your mother or the mother of your children. Um, today's going to be a great day. I believe today's going to be a great day. We are in uh, week five of our series called Conquest that you see on the screen right now. And part of this kind of journey that we've gone on is the storyline of the book of Joshua. So if you have a Bible, um, I would like for you to open up to Joshua. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have uh, prepared kind of Bibles around the room for you. You can pick up one of our uh, Bibles on under the seat in front of you or around you that you can Uh, look into. But in this series, specifically, um, last week, we really dug into this idea, uh, not just an idea, the reality that um, that if we want to be people of uncommon faith and uncommon strength and have uncommon courage and uncommon leadership in our lives and live out an uncommon legacy, that's what today's message is about, is legacy. If we want to do that, we don't start with us. We start with a pursuit of the glory of God. And as we pursue God in the way that we should as followers of Jesus, as we pursue God and he's glorified, then we can become the uncommon people that we would long to become, that others around us need us to become, and ultimately who God wants us to be. But it doesn't start with us. It starts with this radical pursuit of a loving God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, some of this message is going to be, it's going to be like, what? Like, you just don't get it. And that's okay. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. I just want you to know that if you are not uh, pursuing God right now, and you're just kind of here, it's Mother's Day, however you found your way in here, we welcome you. We welcome you. As a matter of fact, you can kind of pick and choose what you want to believe or do here um, within this message. But if you're a follower of Jesus, and I said this at the 915, and I meant it then, and I mean it now, what I long for and what I prayed for is that this message specifically for a follower of Jesus would just land heavy on your shoulders. That, that it would be this, this, this object that would fall upon you, maybe the lump in your throat that you just cannot swallow, that you can't get over, that you have to do something with. Because the the truths behind it and the power behind this message not only has the ability to change your life, but impact and change the people's lives around you, whether in your family or maybe coworkers or your neighbors. It has this kind of ability to change things. I want to, as we get the ball rolling uh, this morning, I want to just ask this question. Um, Does anyone know how to play chess? Anyone, raise your hand if you know how to play chess. See, raise your hands up. I'm going to brag on you. These are the smart people. 
Like, right? Because if I would have asked the question, who knows how to play checkers? Everybody would have been like, of course, like king me, right? That's what you would have done. Well, when I was in fifth grade, I decided um, that there was this, this chess tournament in my grade school that was going to be happening. And a week before the tournament started, I thought, you know what? I want to learn how to play chess a week before the tournament started. And I also, I'm going to learn how to play, uh, play chess, and I want to get in this tournament, and I want to, I want to win this thing. And I had been, been playing checkers my whole life. I thought, how hard can it be? The board's the same, right? It's like no big deal. So I studied out what, what parts, uh, you know, the, the, the knight, the bishop, the rook, all that stuff, where, where everything would go and what it would do and the king and the queen and all that. So I thought, no big deal. Learned how to play chess. Well, then the tournament comes along. And, and I, I started, I mean, I started, I was hot. I was like, I, I beat a kid. And I was like, I told you this is easy. Like, that's no big deal. So I beat a kid. I beat another kid. And then I kind of, I get farther into this tournament. I was just like, this is the easiest thing in the world. They have tournaments for this? I mean, seriously, what is so hard about chess? So I get into this. I get to the Sweet 16, and I'm thinking, I grew up with like March Madness and basketball. So I'm thinking like it wasn't March, but it was madness for me. I was like, I was loving it, right? I go down to the Elite Eight. Like when they start putting a name before a number, it's a big deal, right? It was a big deal for me. I made it down to the final four, right? I mean, it's not a big school, but that's something else. I mean, I learned how to play chess a week before, and I was just like, I got this. Well, I go into the final four all inflated and full of myself. And I go against some punk kid. And the reason why I say he's a punk kid is because he came much more prepared than I did because he beat me in four moves. Four. Four. I was so full of myself going into that. I can tackle this thing. This is such the easiest game. I had no plan. I had no strategy. All I knew was a couple of bits and pieces about the game. And I thought, man, I've got this thing mastered. I can do it. No big deal. But there's a very valuable lesson that's to be learned from my experience. You see, I went into that with just a couple of of details, things that I thought that I could do myself. But I went up against somebody who had strategized, who had planned. And the principle is this. If you fail to plan when it comes to legacy, if you fail to plan when it comes to, to a faith legacy, you've already planned to fail. If you fail to plan, if you don't have a plan in place on how you're going to transfer the truths that have so radically changed your life, if you don't have a plan of how those truths are going to then pass through you onto the next generation or to your coworkers or to your extended family or your neighbors, your faith will not outlive you. It just won't. The text this morning It's all about legacy. It's all about legacy. And God has has kind of embedded this plan of, hey, any time that you you pass by this area, there's going to be a reminder of God's goodness. There's going to be a reminder of, remember when you couldn't cross the river yourself and it was at flood stage. And and your your only explanation was, only God 
Remember when, when you went up to that flood water and you sat there for three days and you had some naysayers and you had some people who believed and there were millions of you. Remember when you went up to that water and this is in Joshua 3, you can read this later. And you're like, remember when you're up to that water and you're scratching your head and you're thinking, uh, I don't know what to do. And yet God showed up and, and God revealed himself through this incredible miracle. And your only explanation after the end of that miracle was only God. And yet for us, we all have these only God moments. If you're a follower of Jesus, we've all had these only God moments to where you were living your life. Maybe your faith journey started at this, this tension moment where you were kind of living your life for you. And, and then you realized that, that you weren't hot stuff anymore. And you realized that, that there was more to life than your pursuit and your individual plan and in seeking your own glory. And God revealed himself and you accepted Jesus. The God drew you to salvation and you accepted Jesus. And it was the moment you went from death to life. And your only explanation in that moment was only God. Maybe for you, you were going through just, you were going through a divorce. You were just going through a struggle in your marriage. And you got to the end of yourself. You realized that there was no self-help book that was going to do anything. There was no conversation that you were going to have with somebody else that, that was going to be able to, to bring you to a place of healing in your marriage. And you finally surrendered to the principles of God's word and you surrendered to it. And you, you got to the end of yourself. And the, your only explanation as to why your marriage is together is you say only finish it. God. Maybe for you, you just had a runaway child. And they got old enough to go on their own and they spent 10 years going in the wrong direction. But there was a moment, there was a trigger, there was a path, there was a conversation, there was a truth, there was a church, there was a preacher, there was a song. And God revealed himself in that moment and they turned around and they came back home and they can come back home. And as a parent, your only explanation in that moment was only God. You see, that is what a legacy does. A faith legacy goes back and he makes God the hero of their story. A faith legacy is, is living in such a way to where you realize that it's not this inflated, um, just egocentric uh, self-worth, self-defining worth in, 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 in the idea of propping up yourself, but instead you live your life in such a way that, that your faith will outlive you, that you can only explain your story in such a way where you would say, only God. I want to ask you two questions. They're both going to be on the screen. First one's heavy. They're both challenging. First question is this. What's your plan to help others avoid the pain that you've experienced? What's your plan? If you don't have a plan, you've already planned to fail. Like what is your plan? So, so somebody else doesn't have to walk through the pain that you've had to walk through, that God has drug you through, the pain that you have brought upon yourself, the heartache. What's your plan? Second question, equally challenging is this, what's your plan to make sure that your faith outlives you? What's your plan? What's your plan to make sure that your individual faith outlives you? 
In Joshua 4, I believe if I were to sum all this up into one phrase, this is what it would be. That we, each and every one of us, are to, to make our, faith, our private faith public by telling others about God's provision. That, that we are to make our private faith, the, 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 the journey that God has us on individually, not just as our family, not just as just even a church family, but you, your private faith. If you make your private faith public by telling others about God's provision, the day that God showed up, that your only explanation in that moment was only God. The day that you were, the, the day that you were saved, the day that your journey changed, the, the day that your marriage came together, the day that your kids came home, the day that it seemed like life started to make sense. And your only explanation was only God. But we do that by making our private faith public and by telling others about God's provision. Joshua 4, we're going to break up all of chapter 4. It's a lot of reading. I do apologize, but it's so good. I don't want us to miss it. We're going to break this up into three different segments. We're going to read Joshua 4, verses 1 through 7, and then 8 through 14, and then 15 through 24. Joshua 4, verse 1 says this. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. Verse 4. So, that was in response to what was instructed. So Joshua called together the 12 men, he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you, it's important, in the future when your children ask you, and they will ask you, and your children will ask you questions of the faith. Says, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it, crossed, uh, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So there was this, this embedded uh, principle, if you would, of uh, just bringing back to and just a really a memorial of God's provision in that moment. So that generations could go back and back and back to the same set of rocks. And that the, the, the legacy that would be lived out is that was the spot that they crossed over on dry ground. That was the spot that God revealed himself. That was the spot where I saw God's power, that, that we saw God's power. My, 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 you know, my grandpa saw God's power. That was the spot. And he said, that was going to be a sign among you. That means all of the people, generationally, it was just going to be passed on and passed on and passed on. Did you know, and maybe you do, that as Christians, we specifically have two ordinances to help us pass on the truth of the gospel. There are two. Now, there are a lot of, of commands in the New Testament. There's a lot of things that we're supposed to do uh, that, that help and they're character shaping. But there are two things set into the, the church experience that are, are rock solid to bring us to the gospel. The first one is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper that, that we take uh, from time to time 
is when we come up and we have uh, the little wafer, it's symbolic of the broken body of Jesus, and we take a little grape juice here, and that is, is to bring us back to the shed blood of Jesus. And that's something that is supposed to be passed on generationally, that parents are supposed to tell their children about the Lord's Supper. It's something that someone like me is supposed to tell you about the Lord's Supper, and it's supposed to just go on throughout all the generations until Jesus comes back or until we're no longer here, and then that outlives us, that ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper. So it represents the work of Christ, the broken body, the shed blood of Christ. But then also baptism, physical baptism, believer's baptism shows our union with Christ. That's why we talk about baptism. That's the reason why that after someone gives their life to Christ, that the next step for them is believer's baptism because that shows publicly of the private faith, that they have put their faith in Christ and now they're showing everyone else, now I am in Christ. And we're commanded to do so in Matthew 28. It says we're to baptize in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're supposed to do. Very, very strict guidelines and instructions. But both of those are to keep us, keep us centered on the gospel that no matter where we are, what, what our culture looks like, who the government leaders are, if we're here or in Singapore or Australia or Colombia or Argentina or we're at the North Pole, we're at the South Pole, that as followers of Jesus, we have this thing embedded in the faith experience of the Lord's Supper and baptism to bring us right back to the gospel. To allow us not to stray. Uh, we're not told that we have to play a certain song or we have to have fried chicken at a fellowship. We're not told any of those things that we've kind of bought in and we start to believe. These are the two things that we have to do. And they're built into the faith experience of a believer. Verse six, it says something I really want us to kind of draw out, um, especially you parents. Verse six It says, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Understand, please, parents, look at me, please. There are going to be times in your kids' lives where they're going to, have to, they're going to look at you and they're going to challenge you by what you, what you believe. But they're going to look at you and they're going to say, why do you believe what you believe? Why do we go to church? Why do we have to listen to a preacher over and over and over? Why do we do these things? What is it all about? And it is your responsibility to tell them what that means, why we do what we do. And I love in this text, it says, when your children ask you, because they will. There's going to be a time where they, where, where, where kind of your responsibility as a parent changes to where you can't discipline anymore. And now they, they're just becoming young men and women and your discipline techniques are gone. And what are you going to do then? Because they're going to have somebody else from the outside saying something else than what you've been telling them their whole life. It's going to happen. So what you do now matters because kids, listen, kids do as you do and not as you say. Kids always, always, always do as you do and not as you say. Kids become, and I know this firsthand, I'm, I'm with you, I'm not above you, okay? You get that? Like we're on the same page here. My kids I just, I picture it like this. When it comes to my kid's character, and there's some things about my kid's character that I simply do not like. But one of the things that I found is this. It's like my kids are just walking around holding a mirror, 
through, through the whole house. And it seems like the very character traits that I don't like in them are ultimately problems I have within me. That they're mimicking my bad character traits. Kids always, always, always do as you do and not as you say. So if you treat church in this way, you only come to church when, when your life's gone off the rails. Like it's gone off the rails and it's gone through the forest and it's flipped over 487 times, but miraculously you're alive. And, and then and you start to realize, oh, I think I'm going to go back to church, right? If that's your story, that's what your kids are going to do. That they're going to think, well, I only go to church when my life is off the rails. And I said this at the 915. That means you're taking, you're, you're taking your kids and, and now they're on this ride with you where you treat church like it's the ER. That means I'm the doctor. Just Now this gets good. You see, understand if I'm the doctor, the first thing I'm going to do when you get into the ER is I'm going to charge the paddles, right? I don't care if you come in with a bum knee, you're getting zapped. I'm lighting that thing up and pa. I'm not even saying clear. I want everybody to get exactly, everybody around you to get what you're getting, right? Don't treat me like I'm the doctor. Sure, this is a place. This is a safe haven for, for the hurting. This is, this is a hospital for the hurting, if you will. But if your only time that you cross through the threshold of those doors is when your life is off the rails, that means that your kids are going to mimic the same thing. That means they're going to go through all the pain and all the suffering and all of that is preventable. If you would allow them to be a part of a community of faith before they go off the rails... Maybe it would keep them on the rails. Sometimes parents, and they think they're doing the right thing, but it's tragically the wrong thing. A lot of times, in, they, the parents allow kids to make the choice of when they go to church and where they go to church. That's a terrible idea. Why would you put that kind of control into the mind and mouth of a five-year-old or four-year-old or eight-year-old or 10-year-old? Why would you do that? You're saying, I value you more than I value almighty God's influence on you. Why would we do that? Why would we allow our teenager to, just, to not come to church if he just doesn't want to come to church? He said no, so I'm not letting him. And it doesn't matter if you're, if you're mom, your dad, stepmom or stepdad, you have, have a sphere of influence on their life. Don't give them that control and power over their spiritual walk. They don't know what you know. They don't. And it's your job and my job to make our private faith public before them. So we're not the hero of their story and they're not the hero of their story, but God is the hero of their story. So I think there's a good thing there to, to make private faith public is, is, a, is a good thing. But I think an even better thing is this. If you could make you, if you could make your private faith public and connect them to a community of believers. So, so it's bigger than you and now you're a part of this community of believers. So they're not just solely relying upon you, but now you have somebody else saying the same things as you. Somebody else influencing your kids for the good. And now you have a whole community of people saying the same thing to them and living those truths in front of them. 
That's even better. But that means they're not in control. That means ultimately you are shepherding them well as parents. Mom and dad, stepmom and dad. But you know what I fear? I fear that right now our friends and family, who they know more who we will vote for than whom we believe in. I fear that right now because of social media and because the things we talk about and the things that you watch on TV, if you live in like Fox News or you live in CNN world, it's like if that's where you live, your kids are going on the emotional roller coaster of, of whatever is being politicized in front of them. They are. Listen to their words. Listen to their words. And, and I fear that that they know more who you'll vote for or maybe who you're, who you're going against, but they don't know whom you believe in. And the thing that you're most passionate about is, is the political world around us, and you're not as passionate about this pursuit of Almighty God. And there's so much foolishness there because wherever you align politically, that person is going to be obsolete in eight years or four years, or 12 years. That, that where you're putting all of your trust and we've got to have this and we've got to have that. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not the most important thing. And, and we, we look at all of those things and all of the political world is changing. And yet the reality, the hard wing reality is this. Why would we put all of our influence on the, on the changeability of the political realm and not put all of our weight and trust on the unchanging God. That's what we have to do. Joshua 4, 8 through 14. So the Israelites did just as Joshua commanded them. They listened. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Now, within uh, verse 8 and 9, we just ended verse 8, there's a little challenge in this text. And actually, I'm reading from the New International Version. And if you have either the English Standard Version or the King James Version or the New Living Translate, these are all real things, by the way, I'm not making them up. Hello, it seems like I am. Or the NET um, or the ESV or the NASB. Um, all of those are legit, trust me. Uh, if you have any of those, it'll actually read differently. And I think your translation is better than this one. I think it's better than this one. It says in verse 9, Joshua set up 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan, that had been. But your translation probably says Joshua also set up 12 stones, also set up 12 stones. So you're going to see a redundancy that's happening right now and then at the end of this chapter. And what I believe is there's actually two different sets of 12 stones. Now, it, was Joshua supposed to do that? I have no idea. I have no idea. I, I believe he was commanded to put up one memorial, but I think he set up two. And the challenge becomes, why did he set up the other one? We don't know. But I believe, and this is my opinion, we can disagree on this. I believe that he set up, eventually you're going to see the other set of stones, but he set up a set of stones where he should have on, on the side where Jericho is, and that's where they're moving, moving toward. But I also believe he set up a, a, a pile of 12 stones right in the middle of the Jordan River. And, and I think the reason why he did so is this, my opinion, is because the, the river at this point is at flood stage. 
But normally it's not at flood stage. So the, the, the waters would go down. And I believe that those 12 stones were set up right in the middle of the Jordan so that people, when it's not in flood stage, could look at that and say, that's the exact spot where they stood. That was where the Ark of the Covenant passed through. That way they would be able to look right into the water and they wouldn't even have to speculate. They could look right at it. But also there was another pile of rocks on the other side, on the side near Jericho. Like I said, we could disagree on that. A lot of people have. A lot of people smarter than me. Verse 9, Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they're here to this day, or it means until now. Verse 10, now the priest who carried the Ark of, who carried the Ark remaining standing, remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priest came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed, in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle. You're going to see why this is important in the weeks to come. They, they crossed over, about 40,000 armed for battle, crossing over before the, or, uh, before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. They would not take the land peacefully. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. So, you see this, this built-in, these, these monuments, I believe there are two, maybe you think there's one, these monuments that are set there so that generations would be able to go back to those monuments and remember when God provided a way out. To, so they would never be able to escape it. They would be able to go back generationally. They'd go back and back and back and be reminded, wow, there was a day that our our, our, our grandparents, our parents, our great-great-grandparents, our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. There was a day where, where they stood right here where these pile of rocks are. And they had no idea what was happening. And the only thing they could say was, only God. Do you know, the New Testament, if you have... Uh, your Bible in hand, please hold your place in Joshua, but go to the right in your Bible to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I love when, when the Word of God connects itself in, in the Old Testament and New Testament, and that's exactly what happens in this text. First Peter 2 and verse 5 says this. And you come to him, the living stones, referring to Jesus, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Still talking about Jesus. It says, and you have come to him, the living stone, the, the solid rock, the foundation of your faith who was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. He says, you also, in verse five, 
He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As living stones. That means there's something compelling about our faith story. Something that's bigger than us. That means part of of the faith story that we're living out is that now we become monuments of God's grace. We become the living stones that Peter was just mentioning. That we have a part to play in God's sovereign plan. That we, when working together, and it talks about two different things. It makes reference to a spiritual stone being all of us. But then also it talks about us all as a church working together. That we, when we work together, what we do is we, we provide a path for others to follow. So for us, connecting Old and New Testament, Joshua built up 12 stones. I don't know how many stones are here. Probably not 12. But he set up 12 stones for them to be just reminded of the, of the memorial of God's provision and God's power and God's purpose for redeeming them and bringing them into the promised land. And now, in 1 Peter... We're told, as Christians, we are the memorials. We are spiritual stones. We, leaning on on the solid rock and foundation of our faith, that we have a part to play for others. I tell stories about my hiking exploits all the time, and you're going to hear another one. You're just going to have to deal with it, okay? My favorite trail in North Georgia is is amazing to me. And, and I remember certain parts of the trail, and I remember this one very vividly. And um, this part of the trail, you're kind of going up this ridge line. It's a very steep drop down to the right. And up to the left, the mountain kind of crest just over where the ridge line is, and the trail's really narrow. And it's, it's very steep. If you fall, it's going to be bad. And uh, this specific part of the trail that you would hike up, I remember uh, very vividly that on the left-hand side, there's a pile of rocks. And anytime in your, when you're hiking, um, if you see a pile of rocks, like this does not look normal in nature. You can see that this is man-made. Now, the pile of rocks, I will tell you, is about this high. But, but that pile of rocks, to, to, the, keen, or to the, the casual observer, you don't really think it's much of anything. But what that pile of rocks represents is a way out. Because as you walk up the trail going this way, cliff down here, mountain peaks here, moving to the north, just to the left, right by your side, is this pile of rocks, and it's called a cairn. In hiker's world, that's what you call it. It's called a cairn. And that pile of rocks is there to signify a trail that actually leads to a home. But if that pile of rocks was not there, you would have no idea that that home was there because you can't see it from the trail. But if you're ever in dire straits, if you're ever in a situation, if you're ever in a place where, where you're hurt or you just, you're scared or maybe you've lost your gear, or you're, whatever the case may be, you can go to this cairn and it provides the path and the way out. We as followers of Jesus become cairns of grace. 
As we work together as the body of Christ, we are just, we are these monuments where people would look upon us, the watching world would look upon us, and they would know the path out of sin and shame, that they would know the path to true freedom, that they would know the path to true and lasting peace. That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying you are, and you and I are the living stones, that we become monuments of God's grace. And that we provide the path that other people should follow. That's legacy. That's influence. First Peter, same chapter, verse 9, it says this, talking of the Christian. He says, but you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. By the way, this is not making reference to the United States of America, just so we're abundantly clear. He says, a people belonging to God. But just so the emphasis isn't on us, that verse continues. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, so understand that God has set you apart for great things, but that's not for you. The focus isn't us. The focus is Jesus and bringing people to Jesus. He says that, yeah, sure, you are set apart. You're a holy priesthood. You're, you're a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. That's, that's where you are. You're a chosen people. Make no mistake. But the reason why you are is that you may declare, that you may tell, that you may praise, that you may point He says, that, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is who we are as Christians. We are the living stones to point others to the way of Christ. That's part of our legacy. That's part of our story. That's who we are are supposed to be, to make sure that the focus is on him and not on us. Let's read the rest of chapter 4, verse 15. Joshua, chapter 4, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask... In the future, there's going to be people asking about this. It says, when, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. But look at verse 24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth, this is not just the Jews, this is us. This is everyone who's, who is Jew or Gentile, Jew or non-Jew, for all of eternity. He says, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful 
and that you might always fear the Lord your God. He says, this is the point. This is what matters. These stones, the the living stone that we represent from 1 Peter 2, it's not about us. It's about bringing people to Jesus Christ. It's about living out that legacy of faith. But if you fail to plan, you've planned to fail. So let me give you this point of application and then I'm through. One point of application. And it's, it's so simplistic and yet it's incredibly powerful. It's so, it's so much, and it kind of rhymes a little, so there might be a little cheese factor there. But I think, it is, I think the principle within it can change your life, your kids' lives, anyone that you have leadership over. Leadership is influence, so you're influencing them. And I think you have the ability to do it. And this is it. Begin with the end in mind and set your calendar behind. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with whatever it is that has broken your heart. Begin with that. Begin with what, if I could pass on five principles, five truths, if I could pass on my legacy of faith to my children, what would those things be? And start with what you would want them to know at the end of their life. Start there. Because if you start with your calendar, what you're going to say is, I just don't have time. And the incredible thing is this. If you start with the end in mind, the calendar will take care of itself. Because you will recalibrate your eyes. And you will see, maybe for the first time, that the most important thing I should do deserves the most important times that I can offer it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good. It's amazing to me that you would give us responsibility, that you would give us influence over the watching world that you would declare through 1 Peter 2 and through just the inspired writings of Peter that, that we would become the living stones, that we would become the monuments of grace, that, that our faith story was always meant to be lived out beyond us. And if we start with the end in mind, you show us the most important thing. And I believe that you will give us time, energy, and opportunity to do what it is that you're calling us to do. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.